this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Let's see if I can get through this intro. <laughs> here we go. All right. Here we go. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> Welcome back, Creative Beasts. This is Random Badassery, the podcast where we ask, what is creativity, how does it work, and how can we use it? This is a new episode for us, or I shouldn't say a new episode style. It is an old episode style that's kind of come back in a way. Um, for those of you who have been around, our normal episodes are studies in a particular artist, whether it is a director a writer, a visual artist, whatever we see for that month that we want to st- we, that we want to study. And this episode is more focused on this is our middle of the month episode is more focused on what Lamb and I are doing creatively, what's inspiring us, tools that we're using for our creativity, anything that we find useful to share with you guys. So uh, hopefully you'll find some value in these. My name is Chad Hall and my co-host is Lam Wen. Hello everybody, how's it going? I want to do a quick, uh, quick, quip. I want to do a quick couple shout-outs. Um, not specific shout-outs to people because I don't have that information. But I was just looking at our stats, and there are people in places other than uh, California listening to us, which is kind of awesome. I just kind of assumed that everybody around us were the only ones listening. So hello to everybody in Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, and Oregon. Hello oh, wow. to nice. 136 people in England. Nice. Um, Hello to people in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany. Hello to New South Wales in Australia. And hello to British Columbia in Ontario in Canada. There's a lot more, but those are the big ones. And to everybody else, there's a huge category in here that is 
just listed to me. It's actually our second largest category, other. So if you are other, thank you for listening. <laughs> Lamb, did you want to start off the show with something? Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, you have the broad stroke on it, and I have the, 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 the more specific, I suppose. Um, I've had a few people come up to me this week. Um, I went to a meeting for uh, a political rally thing, and I had random people come up to me and say, hey, you know, we love the show. Um, so we've got a few locals who are now kind of going out of their way to, to remind us that, that they're in our corner and they're still listening to us as well. So that's been really inspiring. Um, our reader, I, our readership, our, our listenership has, has steadily gone up. And I feel like that, that gives both Chad and I much more motivation, um, to continue doing, uh, what, um, is reasonably painstaking work. I, I, at some point I want to, to talk through, um, the process that both Chad and I use to research our subjects, because I think, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty arduous in some sense and it's made us experts in in some of these people in ways that we never imagined that we would be so thank you for for inspiring us to continue doing this because i think it makes both chad and i better artists and in a lot of ways it makes us better art historians so that's that's very very cool yeah i'm not i'm not sure what the term is i forgot what the term for it is but there's a term for um when you familiarize with something, something, uh, you see it more often. Um, you know, like when you buy a specific car, like if you buy a Prius, all of a sudden you see Prius everywhere. Um, there's a specific term for that. And I feel like that's one of the pleasures of doing, um, the study episodes is these artists, some, some of which, um, we're hugely acquainted with already, like David Lynch, you and I were really over prepared for that episode already before we <laughs> even got into the study, just because we're huge David Lynch fans. Um, but like the, the last episode, our Bob Dylan episode, even though I've listened to Bob Dylan forever and I know you have too, the amount of research that went into that episode and the things that I learned and having listened to every song the man recorded, uh, I find myself seeing Bob Dylan in places that I didn't see him before making connections, which is, uh, doing studies into artists. That's, that's a value I think we don't talk about a lot in here, but it allows you to make connections and connections are the heart of creativity. Um, when you can see how this thing and this thing fit together, now you, you've created something else. In um, philosophy, they call it uh, synthesis. They, they refer to it as synthesis. When a thesis and an antithesis meet, you have synthesis of a new idea. And that's kind of the, that's what this is for me, and I, I, I feel like that's what you're saying too. Yeah, this, it's fascinating, um, especially the Dylan episode, because you're, you're right. I mean, you and I have been... For some of our subjects, you know, with um, Ian McKellen, for example, I've been an Ian McKellen fan for a really long time. And given that he's um, in a visual medium, I find that it's easier to find his work versus a person like Bob Dylan, where his catalog is so dense and it spans such a long period of time that you forget how much of, of pop culture and how much of our, our culture in general uh, he's really he's really influenced. And so after the, the month's worth of research that we did into Bob Dylan, both as a person and as an, and, and as an artist... I started to see his stuff in all kinds of things that I hadn't noticed him in before. Um, a couple of books that have quotes pulled from him, um, a few ideas from TV shows, and just they're—they're they're just his influence on pop culture is so so vast um, that it's tough to really understand that until you've done enough research into the man. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the synthesis is definitely something that that's clearly seen over the span of five decades and. 
Um, I, I feel like it comes in fits and waves, and especially with our, our current situation in this country, I feel like a lot of those sentiments come back. And so because of that, you can see it not just in the art um, that has been produced, but just in, in the culture of revolution or the culture of, of, of you know, disparity between, between the haves and the have-nots or whatever it may be. And it becomes much more clear that his influence is far beyond just the art itself, but much more in culture as well. I think in some ways it's hard to separate pop culture for uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even part of the 90s from Bob Dylan as a whole. I think he is just he's within the DNA of pop culture. Sure. And and pop culture in the grander sense, a lot of times we use the term pop culture to to mean just, uh, you know, the teen pop stars and the TV show that's that's hot this year or whatever. But pop culture in the in the grander sense of all culture that is popular, including literature and art and all of these other things that are popular culture, um, things that we share. And that's one of the great things that I I've, I think that we've done um, so far, if I'm going to pat us on the back for a moment. Um, we didn't do it on purpose, but we've done a good job of balancing larger artists, um, you know, like Bob Dylan, whose name are so synonymous that uh, almost everybody knows who they are, with people who maybe don't have the same name recognition. Um, a lot of people didn't know who Isaac Asimov was. And sure. so it's cool to have the opportunity to introduce people to artists that we respect, um, or maybe I should even use the word creators that we respect. In a weird kind of way, too, especially with a guy like Bob Dylan, um, you see how he defines alternative culture. Uh, you know, if you look at his influence on, on 80s culture or 90s culture, I mean, I definitely do think that there's, there's, there's an underlying influence that he has on, on, you know, the, the alternative movement or the grunge movement, for example. And so I feel like with Bob Dylan, because of how he defined himself in the music industry, uh, when he, when he first got his start, uh, there's a certain sense of, of, of just counterculture that's inherently built into his creative process. And so I think because of that, anyone who followed him, um, anyone who had the guts to follow him and try something that was different from what was popular at the time is definitely influenced by the, not just the, 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 the art he created, but the choice to make the art that he did in the time that he did it. And I think the bravery that comes from a guy like Bob Dylan definitely makes it so that other generations beyond him become more and more brave, allow themselves to take more creative chances and, and feel like they can take those chances and still be accepted within some kind of subculture that then becomes the culture that we all understand. So I think that there's, there's, there's an amazing influence, not just in the art itself, but how the art's created. I think that that's one of the, one of the things that people don't um, take into account, you know, when they, when they get mad that an artist becomes um, big, um, there's this, you know, this whole sellout culture that people use all the time, which I just think is crap. Um, you know, when somebody works 30 years to, to achieve something and they achieve it, that's not selling out. That's achieving. Um, yeah. so, selling out is changing who you are to make money. So let's just make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan started doing Pepsi commercials in 1965, that would have been selling out. Sure. Uh, but one of the things that's really important about when an artist reaches that stage is it's not only advantageous to the artist, it's advantageous to all of us because um, they go beyond that uh, minutia of what they actually made, which is exactly what you're saying here. And they become a symbol. Sure. Um, they become a motivating symbol for all of us. And that makes it better, not just for those of us who create, but for all of us who want to do something. 
you know, like if you want to start a business or whatever, you and you like Bob Dylan. I mean, let's go back to one of the biggest businessmen of our time, Steve Jobs. Bob Dylan was his idol. Steve sure. Jobs didn't play the guitar. He didn't sing songs. He made computers and he made iPhones and he made little boxes that go in our pocket that can hold every single Bob Dylan song. Um, or I should say he facilitated the business that made them. He didn't make anything. Um, but he was influenced by Bob Dylan. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's an amazing thing. And so, uh, I hope that if somebody's listening to the show for the first time and maybe they're not a creator, that you can understand that just talking about these people and these things might help you in a way that you didn't expect. And since we're, we didn't really plan on talking about this stuff, um, and we forgot last episode to do this, this seems like a good time to tell you our next study episode, our next artist that we're studying, which will be in two weeks from this episode, the beginning of the month, um, we will be doing Neil Gaiman, um, author, and uh, most famously, well, maybe equally as famously, um, comic book writer. If you don't know who he is, um, look him up. Maybe uh, do a little research of your own before we get to the episode so that you can, in your head at least, participate in some way as well. Um, yeah, he's he's particularly near and dear to my heart, too. Neil Gaiman, um, for most of my young adult life, was was m- the narrative story- storyteller, um, both from his books as well as from the Sandman comics, who, which I still hail as one of the, the coolest things um, that have come out of the, the comic book spectrum to this day. Um, and the work that he did with probably one of my, my favorite artists of all time, Dave McKeon, um, so anybody who, who is listening to this episode who doesn't know either of those guys, you really are doing yourself a disservice by not diving into the works of both of those gentlemen and or the collaborations that they did through Sandman and various other things. And if you're a part of the younger audience or you're a parent, you might be familiar with Neil Gaiman through Coraline because he wrote Coraline. Oh, that's um, right. So he's, he's, he's also married to Amanda Palmer, the singer. Um, singer musician is probably a better way to say it. Um, so that's 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 who we're doing next, and I'm I'm actually excited. We, we're both already two weeks into research, so we're we're in we're we're in deep into Neil Gaiman's world right now. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Today <laughs> we're going to talk about Lamb and Me, and what's going on with our creativity, and uh, anything that we find useful that um, we've stumbled upon. And since we haven't done something like this. We may wander off into the weeds a lot in this episode. I'm, f- I'm fairly certain that we are. We're probably in the weeds already. <laughs> we'll just we'll just have to rely on each other to uh, reel the other one back. And so, for those who don't know, our original show um, before we changed to this creativity focused format, um, we focused more on the word random, and we talked about pretty much everything: what TV shows we were watching, um, what books we were reading. What apps we were mad at. <laughs> uh, we went all over the place. And so what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to stay focused and rem- keep everything related to creativity as much as we can. So we're going to rely on each other for that. Forgive us if we go off into the weeds. As I said, we haven't done an episode like this in a while, so we may be a little rusty. So uh, let's get into it. Lamb. Yeah. What's... Uh... <laughs> What's 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 new in the creative world for you? Um, huh. So I, I, for anyone who who's who's been in my life for the last decade, um, I disappeared 
uh, pretty much off the face of the earth for about six or seven years of my life uh, with, a, with a job that I had where I was traveling more than half the year. Um, and in that span of time, I took a ton of photography. I, I did some, some cool artistic things. It's, it's funny how, how creatively free you become when you go into a town and you know absolutely nobody. Um, and I feel like the last couple of weeks of my life, or I'm sorry, the last couple of months of my life, I've kind of been in the same situation uh, in that I'm working so much these days that I have very little time to hang out with friends. So I spend most of my day in the company of strangers. And so because of that, I, I find myself wanting to revert back to my, my roots as an artist, which is um, a photojournalist or a, a, a journaling person or, or, or just a, a, a journalist, uh, period. So lately, I've been kind of obsessed with time lapses. Uh, so I've been doing time lapses of pretty much everything that happens throughout the course of my day, whether it's my work or whether I'm spending time on a golf course or I'm playing a piano or drawing something. I just time lapse the heck out of everything. So for me, there's a very there's a very interesting sense of of, of space and time that comes with a time lapse um, in the sense that you have no definitive sense of narrative in the same way that you would if you're just watching a video of time and it's in, in, in as it runs. So for me, I've been, I've been not just creating more time lapses, but I've also been watching a ton of time lapses too. So that's been, that's so far has been what, not necessarily what I'm, I'm doing as much as what's been inspiring me lately is the, the understanding of time in a different sense than what I'm used to. So for me, that's, that's where I am. What, what, what's, what's flowing in your creative world at the moment? Uh, well, before we do that, I want to tell everybody, if you're following us on Instagram, you may have had the privilege to see two of Lamb's time lapses within the last week. It was, I think it's last week, right? The, the yeah. airport one was in, within the week. Yeah. Yeah. Should be. If, if not, go, go to, go to Instagram.com forward slash random badassery, all one word and look and check out uh, his time lapses. There's, there's a mediocre one of me drawing the, the Golden Gate Bridge, but the other two that are on there are lambs, and the airport one is um, really I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, so go check it out. Um, as far as me, um, I've really just I've been actually knee deep in the book, man. Um, probably nice. deeper than I've been in a very long time. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode that I had printed out the first seventy-seven pages of the book, and I was just going through with a red pen. I finished that today, so tomorrow is going in and typing all the changes, and then the day after that we'll be writing all the scenes that are missing, all the holes, and then hopefully trudging forward. Um, it's uh, it's remarkably under control at this point. What what type of environment are you writing? And I'm always I'm always curious about this because I know that throughout the course of our conversations, um, not just uh, for the podcast but just in general, um, we've talked about. Writers in particular setting up very specific environments that inspire them to write a certain way. So I'm, I'm curious as to two, two questions actually. The first is, what is it about the book that you're focusing on at present? And the second is, what kind of environment do you feel best facilitates you being able to do that? Um, as far as what I'm focusing on right now, I've been, uh, I've had like this, I guess you would say this gap. Um, Something wasn't working for me for a very long time. And I think it's what, what has been separating me from the book. Um, it has been make it difficult, be, made it difficult because I, I knew something was off and I couldn't figure out what it was and I couldn't, something wasn't working. And for those of you who haven't written, um, anything as long as a novel, um, 
I had, I didn't know this before either. Um, it's, it's becomes particularly difficult to separate yourself, what you're doing, writing from the point of view of what a reader is going to see. And what I mean by that is you can, um, get into a scene and you can do really clever things that you really like and do some really good writing and be completely blind to the fact that somebody's going to be completely lost reading the scene or they're not going to know what that sentence means or that there's no storyline that's driving them forward to read the next scene. Um, I think that what I was feeling was that there was um, something missing. And when I went through, I think what I realized is that that's what I had done. I had written some very clever pieces, but there wasn't a solid storyline. And this, this novel, um, I'm not going to go into specifics on what it's about, but it has some particularly complex, um, complex pieces to it. Some, some, there's some complex concepts. Uh, and if I don't make this story very clear and I do not make it, um, very basic in the skeletal framework, then all of the other stuff is, is the whole thing is just going to be a mess and it's going to be completely uncom incomprehensible. So it has to have a strong spine so that I can, I can put all these complex concepts in. Otherwise I'm going to lose everybody. Um, so <laughs> what I've really been focusing on is, uh, this idea of, um, there's, there's a lady, uh, she's a writer and she writes a lot about writing as well. Um, her name is K.M. Wyland. I've never read any of her books. I don't even remember how I found her. Um, but she wrote some very interesting articles. I, I'll actually include a link to one of the ones that I just read recently. Um, she basically asks questions like, what is, what is driving your character in the scene? What, what does your character want? And what does your character need? And there's this complex idea here that it's, it's at the heart of any good written story. Um, your character wants something, and most of the time it's a lie. What they want is not good for them, and that's that's why we're that's why we're watching this story. Um, because if if everything was good in their world, we wouldn't need to watch them. Because a story is about somebody changing, or about sure. circumstances changing for that person. Um, and what they need is is the truth of what they really need. You know, um, like for example, one of the examples she uses is Thor, in in the movie Thor. Thor wants to be king. What he needs is to learn humility and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so that the 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 distance between those two things is what drives the for, the reader forward, is um, finding out how those two things resolve. Sure. And and so the, learning how to structure that and how to put that into a story, especially when you have so much of the story and so many pieces already done, you know, ideally you would have this in an ideal world. When you wrote a novel, the first thing you would write is this is my character's name. This is what he wants and this is what he needs. And then write everything from there. But that's not the way novels work, at least not for me. Sure. They come in pieces, like um, a lot of like what um, David Lynch talked about in um, Catching the Big Fish. The idea of you find a fragment and then you use that fragment as bait to get another another fragment, and and then you use those together as bait to get a bigger fragment. And when you when you have nothing but fragments sitting there, you have to learn to structure the spine, and sometimes you have to learn to throw away fragments, and that's really difficult. 
Yeah, I remember uh, in our podcast uh, we did on Murakami, he said something. He's, he has a bunch of stuff that's very similar to that, how the story kind of tells itself through the characters. Um, so I think that, that the through line for any narrative is, is defining that sense of, of, of need for the character. Um, so, you know, anytime I've, anytime I've struggled with writing a story, it's because I don't really know what the character wants. And that's always, that's always something that now when I sit down to write anything, I really focus on trying to find out what the, 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 the driving motivation is behind, um, the character, because trying to figure out what the story is, is, is impossible unless you know what everybody wants first. You know, right. And one of the biggest one of the biggest flaws in any art form, movies, um, particularly story in storytelling, is assuming that your audience knows what you mean. Sure. Your job isn't to isn't to do that. Your job is to tell them what you mean. And sure. if you don't do that, you've failed. And and, and I think that um, sometimes we confuse that because we think, oh, they just don't get it. That's the yeah, excuse I, of somebody who doesn't want to do the work. I, I remember there, 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 there are a few pieces um, um, of artwork out there, or movies in particular. I'm thinking of one movie in particular that I absolutely hated um, and everybody loved. And, and the reason I hated it was because there was no, there was no the, the, what we're talking about, which is there was no motivation for the, the main character that was clear. And I thought it was really arrogant of the director to do that. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I think it's called The Thin Red Line. Um, I mm-hmm. hated that movie on so many levels because it was, there was so much hubris in, in the storytelling that I could not stomach it. Um, I mean, I watched it for the sake of watching it and I know it won a bunch of awards and the director is critically acclaimed and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry I didn't come into this episode with the director's name. I didn't know we'd be talking about this, but that is a great, <laughs> that is a stunning example of how artistic arrogance can lead to horrible, crappy storytelling. I haven't I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen parts of it um, mm-hmm. because it was around in the day when um, you could turn on the TV and find movies part of the way through. It was a Malick sure. film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrence, Terrence Malick, Malick. That's right. Ugh, that's right. That's right. That's and Ter- right. Terrence Malick is a terrific director, but oh, he is. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I didn't find that. that. I didn't find that film the pieces that I saw that great. Um, but you know, that's kind of his thing too. He's, I mean, the, the tree of life is one of those movies where you're like, I have no idea what the hell just happened. There's some really beautiful parts, mm-hmm. but I don't know. You know, he, he Terrence Malick and I, a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but I, I hold Terrence Malick in this weird echelon of, 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 of directors in particular that are extraordinarily overrated to me. Um, and I know we've talked about him before, but I, Terrence Malick to me is like a less shocky version of uh, Lars von Trier. I, I don't like either. <laughs> if you could see my computer right now, <laughs> I had I, I blanked on his name. I was literally just Googling the director of Antichrist because everything you said about Thin Red Line, in my head I was thinking about the movie Antichrist. I cannot stand anything that Lars von Trier has done. I completely it, agree with that. I I, I I made the horrible mistake of of Netflixing um, that both Nymphomaniac Nymphomaniac uh, ep, uh, I guess chapter part one, one and, and part chapter two. two yeah horrible I hated it I just hated there were everything parts, that Lars von Trier has ever done there were parts of the first one where I was like oh he finally made a movie that I'm going to be able to connect with and then it just oh it just gets so awful uh, we don't make it a habit of criticizing other artists um, people appreciate him. Um, sure. So I know that, like our friend Colin, he uh, he he really likes um, Lars von Trier. Uh, sure. 
And it, it goes back to that thing where, you know, some people get something out of something that other people don't. I've tried, man. I've gone through like three of his movies and every time I'm like that, this is the last one. Um, but you know, whatever, maybe one day it's going to click with me. It's like when I read Don Quixote, everybody's like Don Quixote may be the greatest novel ever written. I was mm-hmm. so bored when I read that book. And, um, sometimes it has to do with where you are when you approach something as well. Sure. Um, and like, like I know a lot of people, I, I, the, the opposite example is true for me when it comes to Aronofsky, for example, a lot of people dislike Aronofsky, but I absolutely love Aronofsky. So that makes sense. Or totally. Yeah, I've, I've seen people criticizing, um, interstellar by, um, Christopher Nolan online, left and right. That's probably one of my favorite films ever made. So, you know, yeah. teach their own. Hey, there's some, there's some stuff that I know is crappy mm-hmm. that I like. Not, not interstellar, but there's stuff that I actually think is, I'm like, Oh, I understand why people can't stand this, but I love it. And we connect yeah. to things in different ways. And that's, I mean, that's what's kind of awesome. If we all like the same thing, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of movies, that's something I've been doing a lot recently is I've been watching one movie every night before I go to bed. Nice. And uh, it's 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 really interesting because I, I think I've mentioned before that I, I got rid of Netflix and I got rid of Hulu because um, I have Amazon Prime and I have HBO. Both of those um, – HBO comes with my internet connection whether I want it or not. And Amazon Prime I use for the shipping so the video is just included. And between those and like the little things here and there from, cause I have a free basic cable with my internet too that I don't use. So mm-hmm. I got, um, some of the basic cable apps I can plug into those. Between those three things, there's so many things to watch. I didn't need the other two. So I could save myself $20 a month or whatever. Um, but one of the programs or one of the channels that I've been looking at a lot is besides HBO is, um, FX. FX has tons of movies on there. There's like 30 movies, 30, 40 movies every month. They change it every month. So I've found myself between that and HBO just going through and watching different movies. And most of them are movies that I normally would not watch. Um, like, for example, I probably never would have watched the most recent um, remake of 21 Jump Street. Um, I'm glad I did. It was really funny. 22 yeah. Jump Street, not as funny. Mm-hmm. But 21 Jump Street, really, really funny. Uh, so I, that's like a big theme for me right now that kind of fits into what we're talking about too. This idea of like reducing your options. You know, we've talked a lot about minimalism before. But reducing your options and realizing that you can find something that's of value to you with a smaller subset of, of options. You don't need every movie in the world available to you to find a movie you're going to enjoy or even just a movie that has a part you're going to enjoy. I think the other side of that too is finding things that you 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 appreciated at some point in your life but you appreciate much more now because you have a more evolved sensibility, I guess. So yeah, definitely. Well, and plus I feel like um there's this is actually really funny. Uh for those who don't know me, which is most of you, when I was younger I was very much a a metalhead and uh um very much into, you know, like uh I, they're not metal, but you know, like also into Guns N' Roses and uh, all that glam rock stuff too. Like the end of the era there, you know, that was my time. You know, that was my era of music at the time. I was of age, sure. and 
Motley Crue was a big band, still a big band, I guess you could say. <laughs> they had lost their singer. You know, the Vince Neil had left, and they had this like replacement singer. And I remember that it was – I don't know if it just came to us at the right time. It wasn't a, a great album maybe, but my friend Richard and I at the time were really into this album with the, with the new singer that everybody hated, but we really liked it. And I remember reading an interview with the guy. I can't remember his name. And this is so funny, but this what he said here has stuck with me my whole life. And he said, sometimes I listen to bad albums because there's just as much to learn from what somebody does wrong as what they do right. Mm, interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about watching these random movies. Like, hey, let me put this on. What's this? Okay, there's a movie called The Borrowers. It's made for kids. Not a great movie. But there's just certain things where you're like, Hugh Laurie is pretty awesome because I didn't recognize him for like five minutes. And just these little small things. And you're going to pull something out, but that's you have to put that mindset on. You have to put on the mindset of the the analyzer, the the open. You have to be open to anything. I, lately, too, I've been starting to realize the, the, the power of parody as well. Um I, I was on a weird kick um, over the last couple of weeks of, of finding some of my old favorite movies. I, it all started with Spaceballs. And I, don't get me wrong, it was funny when, when, when I watched it in my you know teen years and early 20s, but I didn't appreciate how clever that movie really, really was until I had a chance to watch it lately. It is... It is, it is my favorite movie now on many levels, um, at least on a comedy, uh, speaking from a comedy perspective, but Spaceballs is amazing, um, which dives me down a whole completely different rabbit hole of, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, um, Airplane, and a bunch of, a host of those other movies that, that have cemented themselves in my head as being some of the most clever movies ever written, um, not just the funniest, but cleverest as well, for their, their satirical value and their parody. It's kind of like going back, which I've been doing a little bit of recently, and watching old Simpsons episodes, like season one, season two, where they hadn't really dialed the show in the way that they have it now, but there's still that wit. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there's, there's a, I was just watching an episode yesterday, and they go, um, Bart's, it's, I think it's the first time you see Nelson the bully, and Bart's, Bart's gonna get his, his butt kicked by Nelson. Um, like everything heading out of the eighties, I still, I felt like it was still a little uninspired, but I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> and when you put it into context of what everybody else sounded like at the time, yeah, it's not that strange. There's, you know, there's some synth tones on one of them says Hitler's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then that, that little thing is only one thing in that scene, but in later, that's what the Simpsons would be all about because there'd be like eight to 10 of those things in every scene. Uh, so I know exactly what you mean. You go, it, sometimes you, you know, you watch things and you laugh, but then the second time you go through and you go, now I'm paying attention. I, I find too, that I'm also appreciating, um, certain things that I, I didn't really get, uh, when, when other people were raving about them and you'll, you'll be happy to hear this. And Crystal, who is, you know, 20 feet from me, will be happy to hear this as well, but I'm finally coming around to Futurama. I finally am starting to get it a little bit and, and, and I'm starting to really appreciate how funny it actually is because of how deep the satire is, um, and how, how, how strong the parody is in, in each and every episode. So I, 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 I 
given my given that I hadn't really watched it during the era in which it was most popular, I didn't really I didn't really give it as much. No, this was a band with George Harrison from the Beatles, Bob Dylan, yep. Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynne from Electric Light Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Those are some heavy hitters. A lot of people don't know who Jeff Lynne is now, but at the time he was. Oh, he's I mean, huge Electric at the time, Light. sure. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then I guess the, the, the second album, which was Traveling Wil- Wilburys Volume 3, was recorded after Robeson's death, right? Or Orbison's death, right? I'm not positive, to be honest. Yeah, I think I think it was... Um, um, I don't know if they recorded... Yeah, I, I don't know if they... they, they I don't know if they, they recorded it with him and then he died or if they... Oh, yeah, he's not on that album at all. Never mind. Yeah, Orbison's death. Um, they still carried on as the Traveling Wilburys for one more album and recorded without him. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the story is behind there being no volume two. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's got to be some significance there. I have a feeling that I'm going to dig into that as soon as we're done reading or doing this podcast, which will be something that'll show up on one of our social medias in some yep. way. I'm definitely posting that somewhere on uh, Instagram sometime this week. Maybe even if you just use the story on Instagram and talk into the camera. Oh, that's true. Good point. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, and then right after that was Oh Mercy. Was the the album right after that? Uh, after which? After the Traveling Wilburys. Was Oh Mercy his, his his first solo project after the supergroup? Yeah, I think so. Um, I forget where the Wilburys fit into the whole niche there. Because I think it, it actually, since those two albums, I think it overlaps between multiple albums. But sure. Oh Mercy, what's interesting about Oh Mercy is that's the first time he worked with Daniel Lamois. Uh-huh. And Daniel Lamois at the time was pretty much known for working with U2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have to say, um, I've heard, um, what's the name of the album? Uh, Time Out of Mind, which is an album he did with Lamois much later, which is yeah. he won a Grammy for that. And it's, it was his, the beginning of the late Bob Dylan revival. Um, but I'd never heard Oh Mercy. And Oh Mercy is, is fantastic. Oh, it's a great album. It's a great album, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, and and Lenoir for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, he he's famous for U two, but he's also worked with Neil Young, Peter Gabriel, uh, Willie Nelson, Brandon Flowers. I mean, he's he's all over the place. So and and for anyone who who knows of his his U two affiliation, I mean, he's responsible for at least for me the the two best U two albums in U two history, which is the jo- the Joshua Tree and um, Actung Baby. So I mean, he's he's pretty spectacular as a, as a producer. And I think one of the reasons that Lanois is so associated with U2 um, is because him and Flood, um, which was the engineer, mm-hmm. um, are responsible for what became the quintessential U2 sound in the sense that um, U2 had been moving toward a specific sound, but that really reverb-drenched etherealness that is all over Joshua Tree, that specifically comes from Lanois and Flood. Yeah. And you can hear some of that in um, both of the Bob Dylan albums, actually, at certain points. It's obviously dialed back a considerable amount. Um, but that's one of the things, like going back to that idea of contradictions with Bob Dylan. He makes this, He's he's been on kind of a flop at that point, you know, like other than the Wilburys, mm-hmm. nothing had really been working out for him in his solo career. He, had, he hadn't really found the definition to come back into being Bob Dylan, right? He was at that point kind of living off his laurels. Mm -hmm. Um, He comes back and he does this album with Lanois, Oh Mercy. And people love it. 
because it's incredible. It has magic. Mm-hmm. They haven't heard magic from Dylan. They've heard decent songs. They've heard good stuff, but they haven't heard magic in probably a decade, if not more. Um, and he does this album with Lamois, and instead of going back and doing the next album with Lamois, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't work with Lanois for like seven more years. He does well, like five o- albums. Not only that, but the album right after it, which is Under the Red Sky. I mean, the, the one thing that, 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 that stuck out to me about Oh Mercy is how much how much more care um, I feel like it was written with. So, you know, the, the lyrics are amazing. It's a really, really beautiful album on many levels, including how, how it's produced. So it's really warm and really, really good. But then right after that, the first album in the 90s, um, Under the Red Sky, is a total about face from that. Um, oh it's God. probably the, the simplest, <laughs> the simplest of the al- It's almost like it was written for a child. And I guess, you know, the, the album itself was dedicated to um, a nickname um, that he gave his daughter. I, I, I'm not quite like clear on that. Gabba Gab- Gabba Gabby or something yeah, like Gabby, that? Yeah, Gabby Gabby Goo Goo. Um, and so I guess I understand from that perspective, but it's so gut-wrenchingly different from Oh Mercy that it's, oh, it's first, almost unstomachable. <laughs> I mean, listen if, listen, if you guys want to get a feel for that album without having to really go through the whole thing, just listen to the first 30 seconds of the first song, Wiggle Wiggle. Yeah. It, I mean, literally, I never thought I would hear Bob Dylan singing lyrics. Wiggle, wiggle. You got to wiggle, wiggle. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. I, I mean, it does sound like children's song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, but uh, uh, once again, that's that contradiction. You know, the first, the first big contradiction was at that period when he was back in after the motorcycle accident. And he's just ready. He doesn't want to be in the spotlight anymore. He's tired of being interviewed. He's tired of being called the prophet. He releases Self-Portrait, which is a double album. Yep. And it is all over the place. And a lot of people at the time thought that he released a bad album on purpose. Uh-huh. That he just dropped it and said, I'm done. Leave me alone. Don't expect perfection anymore. And it's the, not a perfect the- album. It's not bad, though. Oh, it's not terrible, but I remember uh, it's funny that you bring that up because I was going to say the, the, the criticism that, that made me physically laugh out loud was from a Rolling Stone writer named Greil Marcus um, who simply put, um, when, when first listening to, to, to Self-Portrait, what is this shit? Um, I thought that was amazing, amazing to be in the music annals. <laughs> well, it's, it's an incredible thing when you consider that here's this man that's known for lyrics particularly. And even even just not for lyrics, but just even if you said just for the sound of his voice, mm-hmm. and the first song, and which was I believe the single, if they, um, if I'm correct, the first thing that comes off the album is a song called "All the Wild Horses." Uh huh. Bob Dylan does not sing on the song at all. Yeah. And the lyrics are literally two lines: all the wild horses in the all the no all the sleeping horses in the fi- tired horses. Sorry, mm-hmm. all the tired horses in the field. How am I supposed to get any riding done? Repeated over and over again by a couple of they sound like maybe background gospel singers. They have very great voices, um, women. Um, and it's actually it's a it's a good good song. But can you imagine this is this is a man that you've known for his voice for his lyrics. Um, for a particular style, and then the first song in this new thing is completely absent of him. I I I want to believe that he he did it on purpose. I, I, I really do. <laughs> I don't I don't know that there's much he hasn't done on purpose. Even sure. when he's been his worst and he's been wrong, he did it on purpose. 
Yeah. He might not have been wrong on purpose, but the choices he made were very much on purpose. Well, I mean, if you look at his, his older career, if you're looking at, at the, the, the very beginning when he was the, the folk singer with the harmonica um, during an, in an age of, of, of dumb lyrics and, and pop rock, um, there was so much intelligence behind his music that you can't imagine a man with that level of creative intellect doing anything by accident. So, absolutely. And I feel like if you look at, uh, if you look at going into self-portrait, you can see that flip going to happen. You can see that change is going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Because Highway 61 is considered possibly his greatest album. That's a hard thing to say with this many albums and that has many great albums under his belt. But most people will say that's definitely on the list of possibilities. And then you have mm -hmm. Blonde on Blonde, which is another one that's on that list. Yeah. Then John Wesley Harding. And John Wesley Harding is considered a great Dylan album, but what's interesting about it is you start hearing sounds of country music yeah. slipping into his sound. And I actually thought you heard a little bit of that in Blonde on Blonde, too. Sorry, go ahead. It paused, yeah, touch. I might have just missed it. Um, sure. And then you go next, he comes out with Nashville Skyline, mm -hmm. which is the first song on Nashville Skyline is a duet with Johnny Cash. Yeah, which so is now, amazing, by the way. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's pretty much a fully country album. Yeah. And, and it's the first time that you hear Bob Dylan purposely change his voice. Yeah. Um, you, you all know the stereotypical Bob Dylan voice, like, how many roads? That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that voice is gone. And now it's a deep register voice like this. And uh, for any of you who know who Dwight Yoakam is, mm -hmm. if you've ever heard any songs by Dwight Yoakam, that man built his whole career off of Nashville Skyline because his singing voice is Bob Dylan on Nashville Skyline. Mm -hmm. So you hear this first song, he's going into country, which it, to me, I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, he's, he's taking a different direction here. This is okay. I'm, then all of a sudden the next song, which is even more country than a duet with Johnny Cash, and it's completely instrumental. The first instrumental Bob Dylan song in all of his uh, until that point in all of his career and i feel huh. like what he's doing with these two things is i think that this is why he got tired of doing music is because he started responding to the critics instead of to his own creativity mm -hmm. this instrumental song to me it felt like he was going you guys say i can write lyrics but you say i can't write songs well here's sure. a song with no lyrics yeah and then I feel like the voice on Nashville Skyline was a response to people saying he couldn't sing. Yeah, so I you can say see I can't that. sing. Here you go. I can sing. I'll even duet with Johnny Cash. I mean, in in a lot of senses, John, uh, Bob Dylan's entire career feels like one giant middle finger to popular culture. <laughs> and it's it's that necessary contradiction. Sure. I think that's what he thrives off of is that is that about face. Yeah. I've gone down this road. Now what do I do? Let's go the other way. And that, I mean, that's to the, to the point where, like I said, you know, like he goes through what we were saying, Oh mercy. And then he does under the red sky and good as I've been to you comes out and you're like, wait a minute, this is Bob Dylan in the sixties again, singing yeah. folk songs. Sure. And it's everything is an about face and it's, it's, it's incredible. But it's funny though, even through some of the more, even though you feel like there, you know, he he 
he is basically juxtaposing himself at every possible turn. Um, he still has his moments of brilliance too. Like going back to um, John Wesley Harding, the song that that I listen to—it's the only song that I I, I listen to um, um, continuously um, from the the you know from from pounding through all of the Bob Dylan stuff and all along the Watchtower. His as much as even he acknowledges that Jimi Hendrix's version is the quintessential version. Um, I actually really, really, really like Bob Dylan's version um, as well, and I probably listen to it about four or five times continuously. So, I mean, despite the fact that he does um, almost, with a sense of of, of, of sarcasm, um, go into a lot of his albums, um, I really feel like every so often he'll still punch out a magical piece of work just to prove that he can still do it. <laughs> That's actually one of the notes I took, was that even even at... Uh, it changed a little bit later, but even at his worst until the 80s, he made sure there was at least one standout track on every album. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's really it's really telling, um, which which then reminds you that that he is doing all of this on purpose. Even what we we don't like from Dylan, he he doesn't want us to like it. <laughs> and I think to in in my personal interpretation, it seems to me like he was doing everything on purpose before the 80s. But then somehow after the conversion, he actually forgot how to do everything the way he wanted to. And, and some of it was failure that he put on a face, mm-hmm. that he was um, faking it. I almost, I'm, I'm almost willing to argue that the conversion may have been a persona that mm-hmm. he created, that it wasn't actually a conversion, that he wanted to do that kind of music. So he took his persona down that road. Oh, just for the sake of it, by the way, um, because you mentioned it, um, I really want people to listen to it. The, the the duet that Dylan does with Johnny Cash is Lay Lady Lay. Please find it and listen to no, it. No, 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 not Lay Lady Lay. Oh, really? No, no, Lay Lady Lay is him by himself. It's um, Girl from the North Country. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, Girl from okay. the North Country, I'm sorry. It's the first song on Nashville Skyline. I think uh, Lay gotcha, Lady okay. Lay is like four or five. Gotcha, um, my bad. It's it's incredible. It's, it's What's great is they're not even... It almost sounds like they sang their parts in different rooms mm. because they're not even in sync with each other. And not in a bad way, but the t- their timing is just different. Uh, by the way, if you want to hear the version where the timing isn't different, um, there's a version. Um, I'll, 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 I'll put the, the, the link to it in the uh, uh, show notes. But there's uh, Johnny Cash had a television show and they, pref- they did the duet live. Uh, I forgot about Johnny Cash's TV show. Yeah, and and they did a girl from the North Country live on the show at some point, so it's it's pretty cool. There's actually there's a lot of footage later later career when people said Bob Dylan's voice was falling apart of him when he was on tour with Willie Nelson, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a tour I wish I had gone and seen Willie Nelson <laughs> and Bob Dylan, and then they would come out and play songs together. What year I mean, was that? What year was that? Is there is there any video of that floating around? I think it was like 15 years ago. It was okay. very recently. Huh. Um, he was still in his 60s, I think. You know what's fascinating about us, us doing these episodes is, sure, there will be a lot of crossover between what you find and what I find, but it's the stuff that we find that's not similar that's really fascinating to me. <laughs> or even just the perspectives. You know, there may be an album that I liked that you didn't like. Uh, we're, with, I think with Bob Dylan, we're pretty, we're pretty much on the same page when it comes to which <laughs> albums we don't like. Because I think like, they're yeah. just universally hated. <laughs> right. You know what album surprised me that I actually liked more than I thought I would? Huh. The first album. Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan. Oh, really? You didn't I like really that liked album? that album. I, oh, I was going to say. Yeah, huh. I was yeah, surprised. I, really I liked it. 
I kind of thought that it would be like, um, you know, because Free Wheelin', which is his second album, mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about that album. Nobody ever talks about the first album. Yeah. So I kind of just went into it assuming that it was terrible. And it huh. wasn't. There was actually a couple songs that I really dug. It probably didn't get the, the, the respect that it deserved because no one knew the hell, who the hell Bob Dylan was yet. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the, the fanfare revolving around the album was probably pretty low. You know, I years ago I read Chronicle, which was supposedly Bob Dylan's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember much of it. It's been a while. Um, but the interesting thing about that book, that <laughs> the biggest criticism about that book was everybody read it and they're like, I feel like I don't know anything about Bob Dylan. Because <laughs> <laughs> even in writing an autobiography, he remained elusive. <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. And that's 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 the beauty of Bob Dylan, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I don't think, I don't think there are very few people on this planet who really know him. Um, and I think that that's very purposefully done. Like you know, talking about, it's funny when when Chad and I were starting to record this this uh, podcast, we were talking about the things we wanted to do and how we wanted to set things up. And I I jokingly said, you know, I like what we were talking about, and uh, we both came to the consensus that we didn't want to pull back the curtain too far. And I feel like with Bob Dylan, his entire career, he's never pulled back the curtain. He's given you glimpses of what he wants you to see, but the curtain is never pulled back. And he's done with the contradictions, going back to that word again, which is probably going to make it into the title of this episode. He covers up when he lets those glimpses out. So you're not even sure if you got a real glimpse or not. Yeah, like going exactly. you know, like If you're going through a religious conversion, a public being a public figure as big as him going through a religious conversion... That's about as personal as it gets, right? Sure. You know, what your beliefs are on on God and the afterlife, that's pretty personal. Yeah. Yet at the same time, I just voiced an opinion a minute ago that I'm not sure it was real. Sure. Because it's hard to know. Even his most personal, most public moments are questionable. I mean, even if you look back in his career, back to the the Bring It All Home, I, I think was the first album where he went pretty hard into electric. Um and I, it's such a departure from from the previous stuff that that you're not even sure which Dylan is the real Dylan anymore. I remember the song that really sticks out to me from 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 that album is um, "Subterranean Homesick Blues," and I think everyone loves that song. But I think that you know, um, unlike a, a lot of other songs that are popular uh, with from Dylan or any of the other um, artists that we we speak about, that one deserves its praise. Um, and I think that it deserves its praise because it set the bar for what it would be, uh, what what that what that period period in his music would be and i think it's really interesting that he takes such hard turns every time he takes a turn you can, you know he's taking the turn um there's right. no question about it and i think that that's really fascinating about it's a fascinating choice as an artist to to risk it all um every single time you change to change to something so entirely different from what you were before and then in reading a lot of things about dylan that's, that's something that came up a lot um people would say is is you know True artistry is not artistry unless it involves risk. Sure. And like you said, he never dabbled. Yeah. Never <laughs> and, dabbled. And no, 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 you, no. When he hear, when he did Christian rock, he did Christian rock. And that there was no two there was no doubt about that. And when you'd hear him dabble, it was a tease. You know, like I said, oh, this this song almost sounds a little country. The next album's country. So mm-hmm. it wasn't dabbling and then running back. It was putting his toes in and going, guess what's next? Yep, we're coming. You hold on, <laughs> hold on to your hats. Here we go. Yeah, and I don't. I can't think of another artist um, 
uh, in the history of music that's that's gone that far uh, from one direction to the other at every possible turn. Yeah, it's tough. It's very tough. I mean, you could say in a way almost the Beatles, but the Beatles it feels like a, a trajectory. That yeah, they they yeah. were moving towards something. Yeah. Um, whereas, like like I've said multiple times in here, he's it, it's about phases. Yeah, he it's, he it's turnarounds. Yeah, Bob Dylan is definitely the momentum killer. The moment he feels like, or it seems like the moment he feels like, um, the 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 music is starting to move in a certain direction at too much speed, he suddenly slams the brakes and goes the other way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you were to think about like the Beatles are like a football flying through the air, right? Bob Dylan's a ping pong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have yeah, no definitely. idea which direction he's going, how fast he's going to go, but you know he's going to come back. Yeah, and and the creative choices are sometimes not just in the music itself, but what the music is supposed to invoke. And I think that's more interesting uh, when it comes to Dylan is the music itself is secondary. It's it's how it makes you feel that's important to him. And I feel like when he he wants you to to, to not like it, he really wants you to not like it. <laughs> And I think that there's something to be said about people not being able to read into him because even that they can't read into how purposeful he is, even with his lyrics. Sure. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there where people are reading into their lyrics and they have to keep asking themselves, they're going, this is definitely on purpose. But this over here, this seems on purpose too, but this could be coincidence that I'm seeing this. Um, like, for example, with the word coincidence, um, there's a lyric. I can't remember what song it is right now. I just I was reading part of a book earlier, so this is off of memory. Um, there's a lyric where he says something about sense, um, but it's s e n s e sense. You know, like common sense. I think is the line. Um, and then the next line ends with coincidence. Yeah, it's common sense, and they rhymes it with coincidence. And they're they're talking about how it's an interesting rhyme choice. But then somebody else goes into it, they go, and maybe it's even more purposeful than that. Because you can't see the words that he's writing because it's you're listening, not looking at it. Sense, S-E-N-S-E, sounds like sense, C-E-N-T-S. Mm -hmm. And it is a coincidence that the word coincidence begins with the word coin. Huh. And, and, and when you start really digging into that, and I think that, it's it's easy to understand now, even more so after studying him for a month, why he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, because I remember I remember the 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 almost visceral reaction you had to that when <laughs> I was when, mad because I love Murakami. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> and that was and that was during the Murakami episode, wasn't it? Like it was right after we'd released that episode that uh, yeah, that Dylan got there. the award. Yeah. And I remember how, how strong of a reaction you had to that. And it, it wasn't that I didn't like Bob Dylan. I love Bob Dylan. Um, my argument at the time was, why don't they just have a Nobel Peace Prize for songwriters? Sure. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. Why, why, gyp, why gyp a novelist out of a prize? I mean, it, Joyce Carol Oates was up for it, too. There was a lot of competition, a lot of very wonderful competition. Mm -hmm. um, over time, stewing on it and then going through this research, I understand why they did what they did because um, they didn't award him for being a songwriter. They rewarded him for, or awarded, not rewarded, awarded him for changing poetry, the face of yeah. poetry. Sure. That what he did and the way he brought those lyrics into song 
and the purposefulness with which he did that, he made poetry in music possible. And when you think about the fact that the Beatles were writing I Want to Hold Your Hand, and then they heard Bob Dylan, and then they were writing Norwegian Wood about mm-hmm. being drunk in a bathtub, he brought liter- he brought literacy to music. Or like true literature to music. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to to you know, it it's hard to separate the music from from the lyrics, but um if you really do take a moment and study the, the a good portion of, of of the lyrics, especially during the the early years, um there's some there's some masterpieces in there. Um I you know, I'm I in, in my particular case, I love poetry and I I know you do too, even though our our poet our poetic um, preferences skew in, in very different directions. Um, I, I, there is definitely magic to, to the, 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 the lyrics themselves. And I think that, um, anyone who, who is interested in, in Dylan as, as a musician should definitely take a long, hard look at the lyrics, um, just by themselves without the music. Um, there's some, there's some interesting, there, there's some interesting patterns that you see in the, 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 the lyrics that are, that are very poetic. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I like Dylan, because I, 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 honestly, I came into this podcast without much knowledge of Dylan, and I think that actually helped me, um, because it, it, it allowed me to see his, his, his work without the, the, the glaze of hero worship that people typically have when they go into, to things like this. This is not an homage to Bob Dylan. This is a study of Bob Dylan. And I think in studying Bob Dylan, you see a lot of different things that, that you don't necessarily associate with him as being a fan of his music. And what's a very interesting point too is what you're also going to see by looking at the lyrics is um, there's points where his rhymes seem childish Mm -hmm. um, and obvious. And there was a woman in an article that I was just reading. um, Actually, I think it was in the book. He was quoting an article and this woman, I think it was for the New York times. I could be wrong. She said what seems like obvious rhymes, once they come out of his mouth, become poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what she meant was, um, from a literary standpoint, looking at the rhymes, some of the rhymes, you go, well, that's an easy one. But then you, when you hear the way that he sings it, mm-hmm. you know, that fluctuation up and down, people don't realize a lot of that was purposeful to sure. put emphasis and emotion he 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 creates lines with contradicting emotion by the way that he sings them. So there's there's a complexity there, which going back to once again why he brought something new to literature that wasn't there before. Um, to bring timbre of voice into literature, it was new. Um, to before it was everything was done through spelling or through topography. Mm-hmm. Um, but just I would say just go through go through his his lyrics. You're gonna find lines that just blow you away, yeah. like in Dirge, which was a song I'd never heard before. I went mm-hmm. out on Lower Broadway, and I felt that place within, that hollow place where martyrs weep and angels play with sin. Oh, I knew you would like that line. I remember it's an it's <laughs> it, an I wrote easy that rhyme, down. but it's yeah. so good. I wrote that down because I knew you'd like it. That's that's like four four bullet points down from where we are right now. That's hilarious. <laughs> And just, I mean, Desolation Row as a whole. Sure, sure. I mean, oh, yeah, Des- magical. Desolation Row is epic poetry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, it is, it Ezra is... Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting yeah. the captain's tower. Uh-huh, absolutely. That's that's one to go to sleep to. Um, and I, I will tell you now that there are a few times where I, I did pull it up on my phone and read it before I went to sleep. 
Well, I was reading this guy's interpretation of a small part of it, and I, I'm just gonna—I'm not gonna go too in depth here, but just something interesting in that whole stanza. I'll read you the whole stanza. It's praise be to Nero's Neptune, the Titanic sails at dawn. Everybody's shouting, "Which side are you on?" And Ezra Pound and T. S. Eliot fighting in the captain tower, captain's tower, while Calypso singers laugh at them, and the fishermen hold flowers. What he's pointing, what this guy points out, is that everything in there is about is caps encapsulated in that what side are you on it's mm-hmm. the titanic versus the iceberg yeah it's ezra pound versus t.s Eliot. It, it's high literature mm-hmm. high art versus the lowly calypso singers yeah and all of that purposefulness i mean it, there's and i think this is probably why people had trouble going through dylan to the 80s mm-hmm. because all of that felt lost sure and I don't know that that ever came back. He never got that literary again. But his music got better in the sense sure. that he became more musical. Do you th- I, I, There's a part of me that feels like at some point he was just having more fun. And I feel like the 80s were the weird, awkward phase where he didn't really <laughs> know who he was. And, and I think the last, like, the, the last decade, especially the last three albums, it just feels like he's having a good time. And oh, I feel yeah. like he's he's at the age where he's just enjoying himself now. He's he's fought all the battles that he can. He's fought all the wars that he can. And now he's that wise old sage who, you know, um, likes to drink with his buddies and and make wonderful music. And I feel like he's finally there. And that's that's what these. If you look at the last these three um, Frank Sinatra cover albums, well, standards, mm-hmm. standards album. 2015, 2016, 2017. He's definitely having fun. He's dropping an album a year. Yeah. <laughs> and and I mean, it's it's not like he's got much left to prove. I mean, in many ways, he was defined as the, the artist of a generation. Even though he fought that the entire time he was being called that, by the way. I remember um, reading... Um, I, I got to find the quote now, um, but I'll, I'll stick it somewhere in the show notes. But he talks about everyone calling him a prophet and him saying oh, that he yeah. wasn't one um and then he I started to follow follow Jesus and you know that Jesus is a prophet and then people no longer said that Bob Dylan was a prophet and he said something like they just can't handle it <laughs> which goes back to my my thought that that religious period was a persona one, one giant persona sure I mean, what, what else what, does the man have to prove? I mean, if you look at his career, he's got a Nobel Prize. He's got, what, like 12 Grammys. Uh, Pulitzer he's, he's Prize. Won, yeah, he's got a Pulitzer. He's got an Academy Award, a Globe and, Golden Globe. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, even, I think, oh, yeah, that's right. Obama gave him a, a Medal of Freedom, too. So, I mean, I don't know right. what else this guy has left to prove. And then, that's the interesting thing about him, right, is the person he was always trying to prove things to was himself. Sure. And that's what makes him such an interesting artist in general. And I think that, if anything, what we can learn from him, um, that's something I really want to, uh, us to focus on a lot in these, since we're cutting out that stuff at the beginning of these episodes. And what I really want to focus on the end of these episodes is really taking everything that we've learned and putting that into a package like what can't what have we learned from Bob Dylan and how is that applicable to us and everybody listening and one of the things I would say is don't be afraid to run away from something that's comfortable and go in the opposite direction and I mean you know to to be honest with you it's 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 something that's repeated through a lot of the artists that that, that we really like including um was it Stephen King that said kill your darlings 
Yep. Yep. So which also goes back to the beats and people have been saying similar things for a while. Sure, sure, sure. And I think that the the one standing thing for for Dylan for me is how how brave he is, how 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 uncompromisingly brave he is. And that's that's a rare gift. It's it's a not just a rare gift, but a, a rare person that that has the confidence to change that much and that completely without caring about the potential consequence of that. You know, without worrying about what might happen to his career if he takes that hard left. That's why I, I one thing an image that of Bob Dylan that will always be in my mind is that sticker that he had on his guitar at the beginning of oh, his yeah. career. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it wasn't a sticker. I don't know if they had stickers back then. Uh, it said, uh, this is a machine for killing fascists. Yeah. Yeah. I that, think that the moment this episode comes out, that picture's going up on Instagram. <laughs> I have that, that one on that my phone already. back to Woody Guthrie, I think, right? Did yeah, Woody Guthrie so, have yeah. that on mm-hmm. his guitar case? Mm-hmm. Um, but that stands out to me because it encapsulates his spirit in the sense that, uh, he is thumbing his nose. Yeah. He is going to do what he thinks is right. Um, and, and that's, that's an important lesson creatively for all of us is you can, you know, there's a lot of people out there, um, on medium, on blogs, on podcasts, talking about writing, and this is applicable to all the arts, but, um, I'll focus on writing specifically right now. And they'll tell you the best way to write a book is to do the market research first, to find out what the market needs, to find out if there's market for your idea. And that's the exact opposite of art. That is not creativity. Creativity is having an idea, having a passion, and being unable to stop yourself from creating something, whether it's popular or not. And that is the lesson that I will always cherish Bob Dylan for, is he didn't care if people liked it. Sure. It's what he had to make. Yeah. And, And there was no other way to make it except the way that he wanted to make it. Yeah, and sometimes that meant stripping things down, and sometimes that meant excess. <laughs> sometimes it meant being awful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I think back to the, the sudden shift to, uh, to electric instruments and how, how jarring of a departure that was. But, you know, in, in that moment, it must have felt right to him. And so he, so many people criticized him for that. So many people criticized him for changing his sound and becoming a, a different artist than people expected him to be. And he went full force into it, did not care. And the thing, too, is he was the same way with his lyrics. Sure. Um, he says over and over again, one of the things he actually does not contradict himself on is that the best songs he feels, he feel, feels that he wrote were fast they were mm-hmm. easy yeah. they came quick that they it was almost like they came from the sky <clears throat> because he believed that it's it's all about feeling it's all about that passion um i actually have a quote from here here from him creativity is a lot like is not like a freight train going down the tracks it's something that has to be caressed and treated with a great deal of respect if your mind is intellectually in the way it will stop you you've got to program your brain not to think too much. Mm. That's well, a life lesson. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, it's it, it, did you you saw the biopic right? The the I'm not there biopic. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, actually, you mean the one that Scorsese did? Um, no direction home. 
Uh, I, I don't I, no. It's it's one called I'm Not There. It's by Todd Haynes. Oh, that that that's the one that you you mean the the one where everybody plays different personas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there was a quote about Dylan um, by uh, there's there's a, a reviewer um, that wrote something pretty pretty insightful that I, I thought was really amazing. Um, so I'm just going to read it here. We might as well just start reading quotes now. Um, <laughs> Elvis might never have been born, but someone else would surely have brought you rock and roll, the world rock and roll. No such logic accounts for Bob Dylan. No iron law of history demanded that a would be Elvis from Hibbing is that Hibbing, Minnesota would swerve right. through the, the the Greenwich Village folk revival to become the world's first and greatest rock and roll beatnik bard, and then, having achieved fame and adoration beyond reckoning, vanish into a folk tradition of his own making. I, I thought that was amazing of a quote to define Bob Dylan. And for those who haven't seen that movie, you should probably watch that, because it it's not a great film. Yeah. <laughs> it's a brilliant say. concept. Yeah, it's a great idea. Sure. Essentially, essentially to boil it down, you're going to have to help me fill in some of it. But they brought in different actors to play. None of them are called Bob Dylan, by the way. Mm-hmm. And none of them are reenacting parts from Bob Dylan's actual life. Though some of them are similar to moments in his actual life. But they bring in different actors to get across the point that every persona and every point in his career was a different person almost. Um, at one point, even, Kate Blanchett plays Bob Dylan. A woman plays Bob Dylan. She plays the Bob Dylan from back in the 60s with the long, lanky black clothes where he was kind of androgynous. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Gere plays him during like the hobo, um, Billy, Billy the Kid, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid phase. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is in there? Ugh, I, let me let me look. I mean, there's a whole <laughs> slew of humans in that that. Um... It's it's a it's it's a it's a brilliant concept. In in a lot of ways, it reminds me of um, what Terry. Gilliam... Like I said, it's great. But the problem that I always seem to have is just the initial setup of the apps um, does not work for the way my brain works. As much as I love that app and I want it to work, I don't get a glimpse of things in the way that I need the glimpse. And sometimes that's important when you're talking about tools like this. It's not always about the features. Sometimes it's about finding something that thinks the way you think. And even though I think that Todoist is the best made, they have the, the features set that everything, it's all right. And they're moving in the direction. They're always innovating. They're a great company. Uh, I just can't get over that hump of being able to see my week the way that I need to see my week. And being able to schedule things the way that I need to schedule them, which sometimes can be a little bit anal, because I'm for me I like to schedule things, especially the more I can schedule all the boring stuff and do that, you know, maybe for the next year have everything scheduled at least um, the major stuff, the more I can let go and create. So for me, I've been using uh, I've gone back to OmniFocus. Um, OmniFocus is not cheap, by the way. Um, it's a really well-built app, and it's built on the GTD methodology, if anybody knows what that is. Um, but the reason that it works for me is when I go in, I open the app, the first thing I see is the forecast for the week. And it's got a number next to every single day. And every time I open that app, I know how many things I have to do on each of those days. And if I didn't have that constant reminder... But there are always overarching themes of, um, you know, questions about religion and God and and, and his own mortality. 
But the thing that has never been part of the equation is a fear to talk about those things with an openness and a sincerity that is just gut-wrenchingly brutal. And I think that um, also this idea of, you brought it up briefly earlier about religion. Now, um, as far as I understand, in real life, Nick Cave is not a religious man. Uh, but he's said over and over again, he's very much the characters in, the character in his songs is. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there was a certain period of time where he was very much obsessed with... Um, like the Old Testament and like all of the, all of the, he, uh, this is when he was hooked on heroin. So he was obsessing over, over all of the damnation and all of the horrible parts of it. Right. But then as he went on, he started to focus on the rest of it, um, just as a work of literature for him. But that in itself, um, in a secular world to create a character with, um, religious points of view, that's a bravery as well um, because you, you risk um, turning off everyone that isn't of the religious persuasion, right? Yeah, and I feel like the the one thing that he said a long time ago, especially about religion, that really stuck out to me because I feel like I inherently have the same belief. Um, it, it's, it's a quote from an L.A. Times article, um, which was, uh, I'm not religious and I'm not a Christian, but I do reserve the right to believe in the possibility of God. It's the kind of defending. It's kind of defending the indefensible. Though I'm critical of what religions are becoming, the more destructive they're becoming. But I think, as an artist, particularly, it's necessary part of what I do that there is some divine element going on within my songs. And I, f I feel like that that kind of describes what you're talking about, which which is his 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 character, or the Nick Cave that we know of in the music, um, very much questions the, the 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 validity of of just religion um and 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 of god dictating his his divine artistic hand and i think that's that's kind of fascinating in and of itself and that it's an epitome of that confidence too it's like i know sure. this is what i need for my songs mm -hmm. and it's I, I think i'm just being astonished right now by the realization <laughs> of that confidence yeah, it's it's strange too because I, you know he speaks about it so openly, um, and he 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 definitely has a very strong contempt for organized religion. You know, and I think in the same article, now I, it may not be in the same article, but it's somewhere along somewhere along the lines he says, "I believe in God in spite of religion and not because of it." Um, and I feel like I have similar feelings about that when it comes to how people are indoctrinated or, or, or people are forced to make a choice that's very black and white when it comes to religion. Um, and I think that 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 Nick Cave's confidence to constantly question what he actually believes when it comes to to God or just religion in general is a really brave thing to do. Plus, he brings a like uh, he understands that that brings a component that are that is sometimes um, ignored, right? Um, in the song "Into My Arms." Oh yeah. If if he didn't open himself up to that idea of religion in his songs, the whole metaphor of that song wouldn't work. Um, it's a song that. The the chorus is into my arms, O Lord, just repeated over and over again like a hymn. Mm -hmm. So to someone not paying attention to the lyrics of the song, they would think that this is it's a religious song. But sure. when you get down to the actual lyrics of it, it's that dichotomy of the, the religion and the non-religion that makes that whole song. Um, he says essentially, he's, I don't believe in an interventionist God, but I know you do. And if he did exist, I'd ask him to take care of you. So he makes this like beautiful metaphor or I don't believe in angels, but I, when I look at you, I wonder if that's true. 
and there's this strange turning of the meaning of these phrases in there that it wouldn't have been possible without that openness and let's not forget uh or let's let's not ignore the fact that that's just a really beautiful song too <laughs> yeah and that's that's from the the crooner piano phase as well yeah that's 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 there's there's a special place in my heart for the 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 piano crooner um, just because I, I, I respect Nick Cave so much as a musician and how sparing he is actually and how unshowy he is. Um, you know, the opposite end of the equation for me, um, when it comes to musician, I mean, I, I, I love Muse. Um, I know plenty of people who don't like Muse, but Matt Bellamy is the opposite, uh, in that he's a very showy musician. Um, and I think that, that, that Nick Cave is the exact opposite. He's, he's sparse and you can tell that there's a very, very deeply rooted sense of skill, um, but you would, but he's not overt about it, and he never is. And and the restraint that he has shown his entire musical career is is shocking. Like it just the the ability to hold back um, and and let the song breathe, I guess is the best way to put it. I think Into My Arms is is one of the clearest examples of that, where where the song needed the room to be that simple, and he he allowed the song to be that. Yeah, they, there's just, I don't there's so many parts of, so many times when I've I've wanted to share Nick Cave with somebody, mm -hmm. but I knew they didn't have the patience for it. Sure, sure. Because he requires a, a patience, because you have to really, if you're, it, almost a mindfulness would be a better way to say it. Sure. If you're not mindful and paying attention to what this, what these songs and what he's, the music that he's making is doing. It's never going to connect with you. And to to find the real the real depth of the music, I, I find I found this to be really helpful while I was researching for this podcast too. Is I would look at his lyrics while I was listening to the songs, um, and and really get the sense of, of of the literal play on like what you were talking about with you know into my arms and the the play on words, um, not the play on words, but just the metaphor that's that's operating uh, behind the song itself. You don't really get an appreciation for that if you don't if you don't see it, you know, if you, if you don't have a tangible representation in, in front of you. So I think you're right. Like, I, I, you know, Nick Cave for me is one of those people. It's kind of like Tom Waits where I love Tom Waits um, and I, lo I love Nick Cave equally and I like them. For, I love them for very similar reasons in the sense that they require a certain amount of attentiveness in order to properly appreciate. And there's. What's what's really fascinating to me too is um, a, a lot of times when lyrics are um, rhymed, mm -hmm. they become trite. Yeah, and he's a man. He it, the way he approaches his lyrics is almost the way like an old poet did, you know, like um, obviously Shakespeare or Alexander Pope or somebody like that, where the rhyme isn't obvious. You don't see where this line is going. Mm -hmm. Um. Like, for example, in Let Love In, um, mm -hmm. well, I've been bound and I've been gagged and I've been terrorized and I've been castrated and I've been lobotomized, but never has my tormentor come in such a cunning disguise. Mm -hmm. Completely f crystal clear about what he's saying, but you don't mm -hmm. know that, that that he's going in that direction. And that that's a that's a powerful gift. Yeah. Well, I, I, I go back to, and, and it, I don't think it's just 
apparent in the lyrics, but it's also apparent in the construction of the songs as well. Like I think of a song like Lover Man, for example, um, which is in my top 10 um, when it comes to Nick Cave songs. I absolutely love that song. And the movement of that song from its slow, droning, atmospheric, almost almost, almost slow to the point where you want them to hurry up, um, and then the blast mm-hmm. in the face that, that, that comes with the chorus, just smashing you right, <laughs> just crushing you in the nuts with probably the, 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 the most dramatic shift in, in volume and, and, and tempo from, from verse to chorus in any song that I've, I've, I've ever heard. Um, and I think that there's, there's a skill in, in not just the writing and how clever it is, but in the song construction to match the writing and to give the, 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 the writing itself a narrative push um, that kind of stands alone. Like if you didn't have any of the lyrics, you would still get roughly the same feeling um, from the song itself. And that's, that's pretty cool as well. And there's also a really awful Metallica cover of that song. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? They just they missed the whole point of the song. Of course they did. I mean, it, most people most people who listen to Nick Cave miss the whole point of all the songs, and I'm not I'm not immune to that either. I probably missed the point of half the songs before I really took the time to listen to them carefully. You know what? Nick Cave is not not really music that you can listen to while you're driving and and you know staring at the sights or whatever it is. Well, the, the exception to that is if you're driving on a lonely desert road and there's nothing else around you and you can sit there and stew in the 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 the, the, the solemnness or the den- the density of the music. Um but it's music you have to pay attention to. And I think that that's that's something that's you know, I I think of one of my my other favorite bands that we've talked about on numerous occasions, Radiohead, for example. I can listen to that in my car because I know that Tom Lyric or Tom York literally throws lyrics in to make them fit the songs. But I I don't think that that's true at all with Nick Cave. I think that every single word and every note is so so precisely crafted and so honest that you can't just casually listen to it. Yeah, uh, there's songs that I've listened to for years and never even realized what they were about. Sure. <laughs> Until the sitting down in the right mindset, I'm like, oh, oh, that's what this song is about. Um, he's the, the, during that ballad phase. He did a lot of um, story songs, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of those where I'm like, oh, I missed the point of this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you if you listen to some of this stuff at certain periods of your life, like I remember, I was at a certain uh, uh, angry slash dark point in my life when I heard um, which which is another another song in my top ten, which is Night of the Lotus Eaters. Um, that one for me is 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 it's just a really cool song, and it's one of those songs where I just didn't care what it meant because it meant something to me in a very it, whatever his me- intended meaning was didn't matter because it meant something very very strong to me, you know. Absolutely. And we are nearing the end, but I want to throw out this idea. We used to do the mixed playlist thing. Um, things mm-hmm. have changed up a lot since since we did those monthly mix things, um, mostly because we changed servers and websites and stuff like that. I think that um, on Medium, maybe we'll do it uh, separately or maybe we'll figure it out after, maybe together. Uh, our favorite Nick Cave songs, almost like yeah. a playlist. But with sure. more explanation of the why we're including each song. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I would love to do that. Medium would be a little. Um, I, I feel like medium wouldn't be the right place to just post a list like we were before. Like we got to put some actual writing into it. Sure. Let's. You want to do five each? Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Sounds we'll great. not call it. We'll not call it our favorite. Then we'll just call it 
10 songs we love. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause saying my favorite five is mm, not going to happen. Well, especially for a guy like Nick Cave, that could literally change by the day. <laughs> right. And also, before we end, we should probably, instead of having to re-record it again, figure out who the next episode's going to be. Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I, you know, there's just you. You sent me that picture of Tom Waits's dopey-looking face um, in that one particular <laughs> shot, and and there's a part of me that wants to do it, but I'm also really afraid to do Tom Waits um, yet because I don't think I want to do that one a, a special kind of justice. So I don't know. What do you think? I feel like uh, we should wait on Tom Waits because when we do it, I want to do two episodes. Ah, uh, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Sure. Two episodes in a month, though. We'll do those two weeks apart. Sure, um, sure. Just so they don't have to wait a whole month to hear the second part. But, yeah, we just did a musician. I, I don't know. Like, I've been tossing around ideas in my head. I thought maybe Paul Oster. Oh, good know. one. Yeah. Uh-huh. You, you want yeah, to do I, Paul I, Oster? Yeah, I could do that. Um, that that's been... I, I was thinking about trying something completely different, like doing um, uh, an actor, even, um, and going through a okay. body of work of an actor. Um, so I was thinking about someone, someone weird, like Ian McKellen or, or, or you know, Patrick Stewart or somebody, somebody strange like that. I, I thought Patrick. I, I only immediately thought of Patrick Stewart because, um, you know, of your love of ne- your love and my love of Next Gen, um, and how little people probably know about the rest of his acting career, um, other than or, Professor or Xavier. Malkovich. Yeah, or Professor Xavier, or Malkovich, I don't know. Um, but I also like your Paul Oster, Paul Oster, too, though. I just think that Murakami and Oster are kind of similar, so I don't think that that quite works. We could do, what do you in think? the future. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like the idea of the actor. I like I like to shake things up. And this technically, this will be um, this next episode will be next year. It won't be coming out until January. Oh, holy cow. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. So um, who represents the new year? <laughs> I I thought uh, uh, I like Ian McKellen. Yeah, I think that was a good one. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that. let's 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 do him. He's a he's a very interesting figure to me. So yeah, I'd love to do Ian McKellen. I need an excuse to watch Gods and Monsters again. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I I, I want to try to forget that he was Magneto, um, but I'm having a hard time with that. So uh, next episode will be Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen. interpretation of that speech actually interesting that you would bring up heath ledger because that would be one of the examples where i would say yes um people don't know this there's there's actually on on netflix it's funny that i talked about like wanting to get rid of these things but i keep referencing things that are on them (laughs) (laughs) there's a it's presented like a tv show but it's not really a tv show it's presented like a tv show within netflix it's called too young to die And it's all shorter documentaries about um, people, um, artists who died young. Uh, Sure. 
but they're all all the documentaries are made by different people that's why i say it's not really a tv show the first one is on heath ledger and what you find out is that um there was journals and journals of him reasoning out the joker and and creating that role uh well and uh, on that list i would also have put um daniel day lewis yeah sure I believe Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yep, that was the, that was the third one. I was going to say too. <laughs> We're on the same wave, yeah. wavelength, um, <laughs> and maybe maybe Johnny Depp at times. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very different thing. It's a craft to them, um, and I always have I have problems with those words art and craft, and yeah. uh, I'm not sure that yet that I understand what the difference between the two is. They seem to be interchangeable when you when you want to, but in this case, I mean craft as a compliment. It's something that they have honed. Um, McKellen is a master master actor. Yeah, I feel like I feel like part of the reason why because I have the same problems with those words too, um, and quite a few others um, when it comes to to creative stuff because I feel like there's a certain sense of pretension that just kind of oozes from them when said in the wrong when said the wrong way or said in the wrong context and I feel like if you look at a guy like like McKellen um, and you asked him you know you, about his craft um, there wouldn't be a sense of, 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 of pride about it um, in the same way that we would expect for a man of his stature or his level of success I I I, I I get the sense that he would just say that the the craft is ever changing in him, you know that it's it's ever growing in him, and as he changes as a person, the craft does too because the craft is a part of him, and I think that in researching this article, I, I'm I'm sorry this this podcast, the thing that really sticks out to me and the lesson that I really take away from it is, um, in order to to really create, in order to create what you are fully capable of creating as an artist, um, it can't just be something you do; it has to be who you are. And and that and that to me is is so clear in 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 his in his just amazing repertoire of stuff. Um, you know the fifty years worth of 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 stuff that he's done that has has single handedly changed a, a, a good portion of of the, the the stage work in England and and quite a bit um, here in the U.S. as well. It's amazing. Yeah, I think that that's one of the the huge differences perhaps um, between the two types of acting we're talking about. A lot of these um, actors that we're not giving specific names to, uh, that that were kind of um, <laughs> disparaging, they're, they're essentially they're celebrities who act. Yeah, that's that's the way the world views them. That's the way they view themselves. Um, Ian McKellen is an actor who has achieved yeah. some who has achieved some fame, but his job is to act, and there's there's like a blue collar work ethic to it. Sure. In in the sense that, you know, it's like, okay, this is this is my job. This is what I go do and oh, I need to prepare for this and and it's 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 a different way of thinking, I believe. It's it's subtle perhaps for some of you, but those of you who understand what we mean, I think you I think you can feel that. Yeah, and there's there's definitely a workmanship that's obvious when you look at certain actors. I mean, the one that immediately pops to mind is um um uh, Gary Oldman, um, you know, even I, I remember the first thing I ever saw of Gary Oldman was The Professional. And, and from that day forward, I was like, whatever this guy does, I'm going to watch regardless of what it is. Because you could tell that there was such care put into constructing his character. Um, 
and yeah, so you, I think I think if pressed, most people could tell um, who really cares and who doesn't. And there's 